This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Okay. Um, introduce myself. I'm uh, Jonathan Thomas from the Economics Department, uh, and it's a very great pleasure to welcome Sheila Dowd uh, here to the uh, she, to the uh, this is the fourth lunchtime talk in the current uh, semester uh, related to Hume. But of course, this is the tenth month of the uh, tercentenary of, of uh, celebrations of Hume's birth, um, which, and, and the university has been celebrating this with uh, a number of events, uh, certainly one, at least one or more a month, I think, throughout the whole year. Um, Sh Sheila is Emeritus Professor of Economics at Stirling University, um, and she uh, has, she was at, she's been at Stirling for quite a while, uh, I won't say how long, but um, but she's unusual amongst um, methodologists uh, and economists in general in having, actually, ha and having and having had a strong policy interest. And uh, she's worked in the past for the Bank of England. She's worked uh, in Canada for government. She was until recently a special advisor um, on monetary policy to the Treasury Committee. Um, and. In terms of her academic interests, she's, she's worked in e economic methodology, uh, history of economic thought, special, especially on Hume, uh, Smith and Keynes in particular, money and banking, uh, regional finance. She's had published uh, a number of books, re more re recently uh, a book uh, entitled Economic Methodology and Inquiry, and another book, A History of Scottish Economics in Relation to Other Disciplines. She's, Sheila's long kept the flame of methodology uh, sort of burning within Scotland. She's responsible for founding the Methodology Conference, or Weekend Conference, which is part of the Scottish Graduate Programme in Economics. Economics is quite unusual in that we, our graduate programme is essentially run across the whole of Scotland, and we have a residential weekend um, every year, and it's known as the Methodology Weekend, and uh, as I said, Sheila was influential in setting that up. So I think without further ado, I shall hand, hand, hand over to you. Uh, she's going to talk about 40 minutes. Um, we'll postpone questions until the end, if that's all right, unless there are any, anything, any issues of clarification. Thanks very much, Jonathan. And, and uh, I'd like to thank the organisers very much for involving me in this, uh, uh, in uh, the Hume tercentenary. Uh, it's a great, great time to be celebrating a wonderful man, David Hume, and it's nice to be part of this. Now, as with all great men, he's open to all sorts of interpretation. Um, and I'm sure through the series of events through the year, there's, there have been different interpretations within areas like philosophy, but also in terms of how Hume's ideas apply within other fields. And this is going to be no exception because there are different interpretations within economics. And indeed, this is why I became interested in Hume in the first place. Um, knowing something about the Scottish Enlightenment and hearing about how economists were talking about Hume, it didn't make sense to me. I couldn't imagine this person having come through the Scottish Enlightenment. And so that spurred me on to, to dig down into... Uh, works on human trying trying to develop um, an understanding that that did actually make sense to me. Um, 
and I should perhaps explain I come from um, a background in Scottish political economy as it was known uh, when I was first educated on the subject and at that point it was compulsory for all first year undergraduates to do either moral philosophy or logic and metaphysics so subjects were taught with that that presumption I, I claim no expertise in philosophy or logic and metaphysics I have that very small background but it does give one a way of approaching knowledge and this is really what I want to talk about is Hume's way of approaching knowledge. I know you want to hear about human economics, but in terms of his relevance for modern economics, it's, it's this approach to knowledge which I think is absolutely the most important aspect of Hume. I'll talk a bit about some of his specific ideas, and there was an event earlier in the year where... Um, Several people came to talk about Hume on specific ideas in economics. But what I'm going to focus on is his theory of human knowledge and his theory of human nature and why that's important for, for economics now. Um, there are all sorts of jokes about economists. I'm sure you've all heard them, but how we can never agree and so on. And I'm afraid ec economists have been getting a bit of a hard time with the crisis. Um, so it's a very interesting time to be thinking about economics, and there are lots of new ideas emerging, spurred on by the crisis and the need to find good explanations for it and good policies to address it. But it really bothers me that this discussion is constrained there's a dominant approach within economics which sets a framework which tends to be accepted without question. And what I would like to see is a much broader discussion about different possible ways of thinking within economics. And these things are not, in general, being addressed. Um, such issues as, as what we mean by rationality, for example. Um, the role of deductive reasoning um, is another so this is really what lies behind um, me looking back to Hume for some inspiration because I feel that his theory of knowledge would actually be very helpful to economics um, in helping us address the, the new problems that are, are emerging. Um, so I, I know many of you will have been in a lot of events during the year so that you you don't need to, somebody to stand up and talk about Hume's philosophy, but I hope you'll ex those of you who have will excuse me if I do explain my understanding at least of Hume's philosophy so that I can um, explain how we can apply that to, to economics. Um, so what, this in a way is circular in that the way in which Hume was being talked about in economics was ignoring the context from which he came. This was what I was having trouble with early on. It was taking ideas and just translating them immediately into modern economic understanding. Um, but within the history of economic thought field, it's now accepted that it's really important to understand the context within which ideas emerged and what was motivating the writer so that we can understand the ideas more fully. 
And in, particularly in Hume's case, this involves understanding his philosophy, how he fitted into the intellectual history of, of the period. Um, and I could construct this same argument substituting the word Keynes, the name Keynes for Hume, because in many ways the same argument applies. That, I mean, we're familiar with the idea of Keynesian fiscal stimulus being um, produced as a, um, a way of dealing with current problems. And yet this is being done without reference to all the other things that Keynes wrote about, and particularly his philosophy and his theory of knowledge and his theory of human nature, which really underpins a Keynesian analysis of the crisis and, and policy to, to address it. So a similar process has been going on with Keynes as with Hume, which is to go back to the philosophy and then to look again at the economics with that philosophy in, in mind. So the essence of um, Hume's approach, as I, as I understand it, is that there is no one demonstrably best set of knowledge. There are different ways of understanding reality on the grounds that the reality that we're dealing with is too complex for us to identify the underlying causal mechanisms. Um, and if that's the case, then um, there's scope for debate. No, if no one set of ideas can be proved to be best, then that opens up debate about alternative ways of, of understanding reality. Um, he was also um, sceptical. This was one of the, the sort of predominant ways of characterising Hume that he was sceptical about, um, about the role of reason. And this is something that has particular bite when we come to economics. Because so much of economic theory is, is developed within an axiomatic deductivist structure, a rationalist structure, then something that, um, a, a set of arguments which suggests that there, there might be alternatives which would be helpful or perhaps better um, able to, ident to get close to identifying underlying causal mechanisms, then that's something that's um, going to be relevant for economics as well. And finally, in term general terms, Hume was very clear that when he developed theory, it was with respect to a particular context. So his own thought was context-specific. Um, I mean, he was a, a noted historian, and in his economic writing, as much as his other writings, he draws on a massive wealth of knowledge about, um, about earlier periods, um, different countries historically and, and um, contemporary to, to him in the 18th century. And this also is something that we can draw on when thinking about economics today, that, if there, that there, it may not be possible to produce theories which have universal application. Indeed, given the way um, society 
evolves and the economic system evolves, it would be surprising if we could find universal theories to address it. So let me just take a few moments to go a, a bit more um, into that approach to, to knowledge and then I'll look at two features of his thinking on economics. One is his view of money and the other is his view of, of economic behaviour. Or, and I mean, in his case, uh, when he was writing, economic behaviour was uh, clearly a subset of um, behaviour more generally. So, as I understand um, Hume's, the development of Hume's philosophical thinking, he was he he tried hard to grapple with French rationalism and pushed it as far as he could, but came to the conclusion that reason wasn't sufficient for knowledge. Now, that, that's one version of Hume which was picked up at Hume the Skeptic, who was the, therefore understood to be destructive of science. But in fact, Hume then turned to alternative ways of building knowledge. And it he concluded that all knowledge had to be founded on a theory of human nature. If reason is not alone, then what this highlighted was the role of sentiment or the passions, as he called it in particular, and of social convention. So what he argued was that no body of knowledge could be founded on deductive reasoning, there had to be a foundation of belief, either conventional belief or um, or something more personal in the, in the form of, of sentiment. And this presents Hume's notion of human nature in a very social light and I don't mean by that that individuals are selfish and yet look to society as something separate, an atomistic view of the individual. Rather, he saw the individual as a social being. And therefore, the, the notion of social conventions governing behaviour was not something that was drawn in from outside, but was part of the way in which, um, in which humans... Um, are able to function uh, in day-to-day -day life. Now, Hume's also associated with the problem of induction, which has a particular um, interpretation within the economics literature in, expressed in purely statistical terms. Whereas I understand that Hume's problem of induction was that the... the physical systems, social systems are so complex we can't identify underlying causes therefore we can we cannot predict the future with any certainty and this was a, a theme that um, Keynes picked up of course um, and indeed just to, to quote um, he argued, any hypothesis that pretends to discover the ultimate original qualities of human nature ought at first to be rejected as presumptuous and chimerical. 
So he's being modest about what's possible in terms of knowledge, and yet he proceeded to pursue knowledge as something that is within human, human capability. And he drew attention to the various faculties that humans have in order to, um, to build knowledge, of which perhaps the key is in terms of um, both theory of knowledge itself but also application to economics is the role of the imagination. It's the imagination that gives us the idea of cause in the first place um, it's imagination which governs interpersonal relations <coughs> that, that we act as social animals because we can put ourselves in the shoes of, of other of the others that, with whom we're dealing and we see ourselves as others others see us and our individuality is defined within society if deductivist reasoning is not enough then the implication that was taken traditionally in economics was that induction is the answer. Um, and Hume was seen as, in many ways, as the father of logical positivism within economics and, and the, this of inspiration for the field of econometrics, which is the, the, the field within economics which um, focuses on deriving conclusions from large data sets. But rather, uh, Hume adopted a, an approach which he took from Newton. And it was a particular definition of Newton which was peculiar to Scotland and didn't really um, spread more widely until much, much later. And this is because this view of Newton fitted very well with the Scottish approach to building knowledge, which was to draw from experience or evidence... Um, it was called ex the experimental method, and, um, which has more direct, had more direct implications to, for um, physical sciences. From these observations, attempt to posit some principles, and then go back to experience to see how far these principles apply, and then continue in, in a process of retroduction between experience and reason in order to build up um, some general principles. But what was important was that the general principles were not regarded as axioms. They weren't for universal application for all time. They were provisional. And this was particularly the case because the new experiences which were to be drawn on to assess the principles could throw up totally new phenomena and require amendment to the, to the theory. So we have a search for general principles, but not in the sense of, of axioms. Um, and this is, this is where Hume, the historian, is so important, of course, because he regarded history as providing the experiments for, um, for this method to be applied to the social sciences. And he did actually express some doubts about conducting experiments within the social sciences on the grounds that it would interfere with the underlying mechanisms. Um, now, there's a large body of work within modern economics which is um, addressed to building experiments to get around these problems. Hume um, 
express some doubts about this way in advance of, of the actual experience. Um, now, if, if these principles can't be demonstrated to be true, in other words, if deductive logic isn't enough, observation's not enough because of the problem of induction, then persuasion performs a key function. If knowledge is ultimately a matter of belief, then it's open to any philosopher, um, natural philosopher otherwise, to try to persuade others to understand the experience in the same way, to accept the argument in favour of the general principles that are being developed and, the, and indeed the bodies of theory that are being developed. And so rhetoric's really important. Um, there's a book come out recently uh, by Willie Henderson about Hume's rhetoric. I mean, he was very conscious of the way in which he either succeeded or did not succeed in persuading his audience. But like Smith, he saw rhetoric as, as being very important. And he focused, in, in terms of the content of his rhetoric, on the psychological appeal of arguments. That we're persuaded by something that makes us feel content. Since cr truth is beyond our grasp, then what we need, what satisfies us is something that puts our minds at rest, makes us content, reduces cognitive dissonance, would be a, a modern way of, of putting it. And finally, um, in terms of laying the ground for um, thinking about his economics, Hume saw discussion about economic matters as being uh, a moral science. I mean, economics didn't exist as such, so it's, he didn't say economics is a moral science, but that's how he treated <laughs> economic subjects. And this was because he understood social conventions and behaviour and role of government all in terms of, all in moral terms. He wasn't saying that people are unselfish rather than selfish, but he was saying that there is always this moral dimension to the way in which people behave and the way in which social structures are developed and the way in which economic policy is designed. Um, just to give you another quote, uh, he, he was interested in commercialization, which was progressing at the time, you know, the, the building up of market processes, which some people were really worried about because they felt that it was eroding moral values, it was changing traditional patterns of behavior, eroding traditional institutions. Um, but on the other hand, Hume saw positive aspects to commercialization because he saw the more regular um, behaviour patterns in, in formal working arrangements rather than uh, subsistence arrangements. When people came to the town, they were involved in, in contractual arrangements, working with other people, developing a sense of organisation and, and obligation and responsibility. And he saw this as a, as a, in a positive light, that this would... Um, on, on the one hand, there was a threat to the moral fabric. On the other hand, there were aspects of commercialisation which would strengthen the moral fabric. So 
this is the theory of knowledge and human behaviour which Hume brought to economic questions. Let me start with money. In modern economics, one of the earliest references to Hume is in Milton Friedman's resuscitation of the quantity theory of money. This was, this was happening from the, the 50s and 60s on to the point that the, the policy of monetarism became widely applied um, in a whole range of countries. And monetarism involves the argument that inflation is caused by growth of the money supply. You know, that there's a, a correspondence over a period of time between rate of growth in the money supply of a certain, at a certain level to a rate of growth of the price level at a corresponding level. And this is a, an idea which is now so ingrained that it's very rarely questioned. Monetarist policies aren't applied now in the same sense. You know, I'll, I'll resist the temptation to, <laughs> to talk about that. But, but the idea that there's a close correlation between growth in the money supply and inflation is very deeply embedded. And you'll see it in any of the discussions in, in the press when there's a new bout of quantitative easing. Therefore, it will be argued we will have a new bout of inflation following on from that. Now, Friedman referred back to Hume as being the originator of, of this idea. And indeed, you can find passages which suggest that this is the case, that there is indeed a correlation between rates of growth of the money supply and rates of growth in the price level. But if you read on, you find that when Hume talks about particular instances of the rate of growth in the money supply, he says something very different. And he argues very explicitly that the rate of, that the money supply growing in most cases is a symptom rather than itself a cause. In other words, there's something else that's causing both the money supply to grow and the price level to grow. So supposing um, labour becomes more productive in Britain, our exports become more attractive, we sell more overseas, and correspondingly there's an inflow of money, which would be the, the typical way in which the money supply would change in the 18th century. And, and generally speaking, this would be specie, in other words, um, coin. As this influx of coin spreads around the British economy, there would indeed be more spending and the price level would tend to rise. But what Hume pointed out was that the root cause is a rate of growth in productivity and the influx of money itself would encourage productivity to rise. The spirit of industry would be stirred up by the inflows of, of specie. He was very concerned about the spirit of industry. He felt that that's what um, underlay economic growth. So in the period between the specie being arriving in the British economy and the price level rising, you have a growth, further spell of growth in productivity. 
In other words, the situation is not neutral. The monetarist argument was that it's neutral in the long run, that eventually any increase in activity because of money flowing in would be reversed once prices had risen. For Hume, you have a continual step up in productivity in a way that's not deterministic. I mean, you can't talk about the spirit of industry in, in, in any sort of general or absolute sense. You'd want to talk about specific contexts. Nevertheless, you have this spur to productivity of some sort, normally, as a result of money flowing in. So this is very different from saying money flows in, prices go up, end of story. Um, he wasn't particularly interested in, in the money flows as such. It was different when it came to... Um, growth of bank credit and um, government spending to finance wars. And there, there's clearly quite a lot that um, could be talked about uh, in terms of uh, the, the current situation. But Hume was never a purist about distinctions. He was concerned about paper money, bank credit, as opposed to coinage. Um, I mean, he even used the word counterfeit. And yet the coinage he talked about as being fictitious. He had a very sophisticated notion of money as being a sign that it, it was a... It was real, money was a social convention and we assign value to these bits of metal and in due course to, to bits of paper. Um, so that there wasn't a sharp divide between his understanding of, of money as specie and paper money. But he did express more concerns about paper money. I mean, this was the time of the Mississippi bubble and, and uh, John Law's um, credit scheme in France, which dramatically uh, collapsed. I think there's something personal going on there because John Law was... Uh, he was kind of a notorious character. He was a murderer, if I remember rightly. Uh, I'm not sure whether Hume allowed his personal <laughs> views to uh, affect his views on, on the law scheme. But I just went through that um, argument just to try to illustrate the fact that taking isolated statements out of Hume's economic essays, or indeed his philosophical essays, where he, he would often use economic um, examples, can be very misleading. I mean, what we've seen is that the outcome is complex, and it's going to depend on the context, and it's not a mechanical relationship. It's not something that, that we can subject very easily to, to deductive logic. Now this applies even more when we come to theory of human behaviour and this is a huge area for debate within economics just now and particularly in the light of the crisis. How do we characterise the behaviour that led up to the crisis? Now one of the most common ways of talking about this is to talk about irrationality and to suggest that the, the bubble in the stock market was caused by irrational behaviour. Normally, people behave rationally, but for some reason, 
there is there was this outburst of, of irrational behaviour. Now Hume had argued that reason is not a sufficient basis for behaviour. There always has to be some belief. Um, I mean, you all believed that these seats would hold you up when you sat down on them. Fairly reasonable belief. Um, but, I mean, our behaviour more generally involves some form of belief that um, people will behave to us the way we're accustomed to, um, that, that there can be relationships of, of trust without even thinking about it. Now, there's talk about trust in terms of the breakdown of financial relations between banks, the central bank, and the public. But again, because the predominant way of thinking about this in economics is to think in terms of calculative rationality, this implies that these social relations are all calculative, that we consciously or subconsciously assess others' reactions to our behaviour and out of that builds the habit of trust. That's, that's a, a sensible way of thinking about things if we start from an atomistic view of human behaviour and calculative rationality. But if we start from Hume's view of individuals as not being atomistic but being by nature social... Um, and challenged in terms of the amount of knowledge that's accessible to them, the, the confidence that they can have in that knowledge, then conventions and habits are the bedrock of all our behaviour. This is what's so scary about crises, because they make us a bit nervous about all these things that we've taken for granted. But if, from a human perspective, the goal would be not to have to keep calculating you know, not having to think, oh my goodness me, has, has this bank merged with this other one so they're part of the group so that this threatens my deposit insurance um, cover. That, or particularly in terms of human relations and trust. But it also applies to relations between banks, between institutions like banks and individuals, and institutions like the central bank and banks and individuals. You know, how do we still have trust in, in the central bank? Um, do the banks have trust in the central bank just as much as does the central bank have trust in the banks? These things are all up in the air at the moment. And the, the way you deal with them depends very much on the, the theory of knowledge that you start from and the theory of human behaviour that, that is involved there. Um, one of the expressions um, that's been banded about is animal spirit. Uh, this is something that Hume wrote about, I and mean, it goes back to the, the ancient Greeks, at, at least as, as a sort of physiological concept. Keynes started using it as a way of talking about the, the psychological urge for action. Um, as a spontaneous urge, not something that's explained by reason or evidence, but something that explains why we take leaps in the dark. So in a way, this is taking forward Hume's agenda, that we have reason, evidence, we have conventions, but we also have this psychological urge. And like Hume, Keynes 
didn't see a sharp distinction between reason and sentiment or emotion, but rather saw them as being interconnected and, and mutually dependent. But that's another of these concepts that um, <laughs> whose meaning is taken from the framework, the theoretical framework um, that's being employed, because mostly animal spirits is talked about as irrationality. You know, if we can't explain behaviour by reason and evidence, then it must be something irrational, something out a bolt from the blue that explains behaviour. Whereas Keynes um, argued that it was something necessary if people are to move beyond social convention. And another area, uh, just finally, uh, before I finish, where this, um, this discussion is relevant is the, the happiness literature. A lot of discussion about what, what makes us happy. And uh, a lot of the evidence is, is actually supportive of the way in which Hume approached the subject, which is that while wealth um, brings happiness up to a point, it's only true up to a point and moral sensibilities sense of dignity and self-worth are as important as are processes you know, rather than the end result processes and uh, we're um, privileged to hear Sen talking about these things early, earlier in the year so here again Hume's able to to provide some insight but the in order to tap into that insight, one has to be open to his way of thinking about how we build knowledge in the first place. What do we mean by rationality, reason? What's the scope for, for deductive logic? And, and this is really, I mean, it's actually my, my focus at the moment of the work I'm doing to try and show what the possibilities are if we step outside the traditional way of thinking in economics. I mean, it's not, I mean, I could construct an argument, but I mean, it's not necessarily an argument that one's better than the other. But it's, it's an argument, it's a it's much more foundational argument that there are different possibilities there which um, should be on the table and open for discussion because we've got so many challenges just now. We need, we need all the help we can get. So... We can get some help from Hume. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, we have, we have time for questions um, or discussion. Uh, I wonder if I could just start off by because mm -hmm. when you when you first couple of things you said um, was that in terms of Hume's um, epistemology, the, the, the two points: there's no one best understanding. Mm -hmm. Things. Another one was getting actually getting to the underlying causal mechanisms is, is very tricky or mm -hmm. impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that sounds like two quotes from the the citation for the Nobel Prize winners last week, which Christopher Sims, uh, who won, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for mainly his econometric work, yes. which was very a pretty atheoretical, just looking at just looking at the numbers, mm -hmm. uh, but then you know and saying we, you know we sh we shouldn't take these shouldn't assume there's a specific correct model. There are a number of competing models in macroeconomics mm -hmm. and monetary policy. You know, they're very specific. We can't use these models to, you know, you can't be doctrinaire about them. So let's take a sort of rather more empirical approach. 
as I was saying, that's quite very very similar to to that. I don't know. Is there is it? And can you trace a link between Hume's thought and influence and empiricism and that kind of econometrics, or is it really rather you know, the, the the time distance is so great that you can't? Well, I mean, my own interpretation would be that Hume was saying something rather different in that one can never look purely at experience because one is always, I mean, we're imbued by conventional understandings and beliefs from such an early age that we never have a, a totally independent way of looking at the world. And and yeah. seems puts in a bit of theory. So he says, well, we, we shouldn't be totally theoretical. We should put in some ideas which are the which we think the important variables are in, in monetary policy. You know, but but not so. You're sort of slightly informed by theory, but mainly letting the data speak. That's quite a you know. As I, I, I mean, I don't really understand. Uh -huh. I'm not um, an expert in that area, but it just, it just sounded like it well, some. I mean, I see, I see Hume as sort of sitting in the middle in all sorts of middle grounds, and one of them is between deduction and induction and going back and, and forth between the two. Um, and I mean, while we're talking about the Nobel Prizes this year, I mean, the other one was for Tom Sargent, who in, uh, I mean, in, in many ways has grappled with all sorts of interesting questions, but he always comes back to the idea that <coughs> what we want is one large formal model. I mean, he's developed very complicated ways of getting there through robust control theory, but ultimately it's still looking for one large formal model, a, a deductivist model. Yeah, which you yeah, reject. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, Sargent's honest enough to try and do the interplay between induction and deduction and, and keeps getting into difficulties because it's difficult. <laughs> I find it very refreshing, thank you, your approach, because it seems that in our Western way of economics, it's been very much either from experience, you know, through sense perception, mm -hmm. or um, deductive reasoning, logic. And you, you talked about the role of imagination. Yes. And I just wonder, when you say imagination, it seems how people imagine how they might... Um, imagining, which is different from intuitive reasoning. Yes. And, you know, in a way, yes. that seems to be the need, because we do know within ourselves, we are social animals, what is needed <coughs> for the greater good, you might say. And um, so it's more in intuition out of thought and imagining. Do you want to say something about that? And that seems to be what's needed, and seems to be you understanding human nature. Yes. It, it, intuition... Words always mean different things depending on the context. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, That's um, why I'm asking. Yes, so it's a, it's a particularly good question from that point of view. Um, I, I didn't really develop the what I'd been saying about imagination, but I mean, for Hume, imagination enters into the way we build knowledge quite apart from our human relations, in that we we. We can't even get started unless we imagine that there is some regularity, there's, there's some causal mechanism underneath that we can't mm -hmm. tap into. So imagination comes in, in there, and, and Smith developed Hume's ideas talking about imaginary machines, you know, theories like an imaginary machine and, um, and so on. But then when it comes to human behavior, imagination enters into all our human relations. And it also enters into our goals. 
you know, the, the, the common goal, economic goal that's specified is that we maximize our income. Well, what, what are we doing there? We're, we're imagining that we're going to be happy <laughs> when we get this income. And the, the whole motivation is, is couched in terms of imagination. So it's in there right from the foundations. Any other questions? If you don't, I might ask you to, I thought you might speculate a bit about um, um, state bankruptcy and defaulting on debts. I mean, <laughs> as, as you know, um, in the first edition at least of the essay on public credit, Hume recommends that Britain voluntarily default on its public debt. Mm -hmm. um, I wondered whether you might develop that thought in a contemporary context. Yes. Um, Yes. It, I mean, Hume was not very keen on the idea of public debt no. to, well, to excess by definition, but uh, large amounts of public debt. But, but he was familiar with public debt being built up to finance wars. Um, and, and this wasn't very good for the spirit of industry or, or the, the labour, the stock of labour. So. Um, he, I, I suspect that was a major motivation for his concern with public debt. In terms of defaulting on debt, default was more common then. I mean, we've been accustomed, I mean, it have been governments defaulting from time to time, but uh, particularly in Europe, um, it, uh, it seems a rather alarming prospect. So that it wouldn't be as alarming then Having said that, I, I do actually find it a bit surprising. It's quite alarming. I mean, yes. I mean, if Britain defaulted on its debt in 1752, yes. it would be an awful lot of money. That would be yes, yes, and and Hume wasn't one for bold gestures either. No. I mean, that's pretty bold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he seemed to be motivated to sort of moderate change, and defaulting is not moderate. So I, I actually find it a bit surprising. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Thank you very much. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a question about the, the animal spirits. Mm -hmm. The way you described them in Keynes, mm -hmm. I don't know if I Keynes, really, but it was a, a psychological urge. Now they come in a century previously, but one that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. Animal spirits are like tiny little rapidly moving physical yes. beings yes. that um, are activated in the body by, by the soul or by the will, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and they are the, the, um, the beings, the, the things through which movement occurs. Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. enable the um, contraction of the muscles of your arm and, and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. But that, that was not how, <coughs> how Keynes was describing mm -hmm. them, and nor by implication then Hume. So well, no, Hume talked about them in physiological terms. Okay. Actually, I mean, so it was a, I'm afraid I, I tend to jump between the two because in so many other respects they're very similar. Um, right. So I Hume, mean, Hume, was, Hume was using them in the traditional way yes. and would have been going back, say, to Marlborough or yeah. to take part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, so he, he didn't... I mean, 
some of you would know better than myself, I don't think he talked about some of the equivalent of Keynes's animal spirits. But it, it, to my mind, it fits very well in his theory of human behaviour. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's a, the, 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 perhaps there is a link to, to follow through there in that um, if, if Hume was influenced by Malbranche and Malbranche and Descartes, that physiology mm -hmm. of the animal spirits mm -hmm. and the pathways being laid mm -hmm. down in the brain so that the, the patterns, the customs, the habits get, get built up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think there are clear um, echoes of that in, in, in Hume and the way that he speaks, mm -hmm. but when Hume describes, describes those connections, he's not describing them in physical terms the way that Malbranche would have done, but rather in, in psychological terms, yes. he's talking about the, the way that the experiences are linked together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I forget okay. just now yeah. where he talks about animal spirits, but it's, it's no particular deal in Hume what he says about animal spirits, as I recall. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Just as a nugget to throw in, it was it was um, Keynes and Sraffer who found the abstract, Hume's abstract, in a bookstall in Cambridge, I seem to remember. <laughs> Shows how, how attuned he was to, to Hume. He collected a huge amount of Hume's mm. book. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if I can ask a rather kind of wild speculative question. Um, what do you think Hume would have thought of Marx's ideas and Marx's ideas in economics and society. Do, 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 do you think he would find some of them quite respectable, carrying on some of his ideas? I mean, Marx took from the Scottish Enlightenment the stadial view of history, so that there was a, a continuity there, and, and Marx acknowledged that himself and uh, I mean I think he acknowledged particularly James Stewart rather than Human Smith um, to go any further I mean it depends what you mean by Marx's ideas <laughs> because I mean there is a, there's an interpretation of Marx which, which would follow on from Hume where he focuses on problems of fetishism with money and the need to change the organisation of society in order to allow meaningful life. But that's not how everybody talks about Marx, and that's just one, one of the interpretations. And Hume would, to my mind, have not been at all persuaded by the idea of revolution government default apart <laughs> uh, he was he was much more inclined to argue for a gradual change there was a question in stressing the sociality of human nature uh -huh. was Hume and, 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 and the other Scottish Enlightenment people were they deliberately even polemically um, distancing themselves from the rational social contract thinking that was around, um, where, whereby nature was considered, um, human nature was, was not social, but mm -hmm. it, was the, it was the consequence of a, a rational social contract that um, 
we became more social than we, we were by nature. Was, was that a conscious and, and deliberate uh, distinction of themselves from Hobbes and other such? To some extent, yes. I mean, I don't think it took a great leap. I mean, it was embedded in the, the Scottish tradition of thinking. In, 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 I'm conscious of the fact there are people in the audience who could answer that question much better than myself, and perhaps you would care to answer that. Well, we Hume explicitly rejected the social contract tradition. Um, so, yes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned the importance Hume placed on history. Um, as you can well imagine, I'm easily picked up at that. Um, would you like to say a little thing about uh, something about the, the use of history in the training of economists? I can remember when economic students almost always took courses in economic history. Mm-hmm. I think it's much less mm-hmm. often the case now. Uh, and indeed, one can think of economic models which might have been better had they had more aware of change over time. For example, models based on value of property. Um, would you like to say anything about what history could do for the training of economists methodology? Well, hist- history could do a lot for, <laughs> for economics, I think. I, I was a matter of trade-offs, and what's happened is that, that economics has become such a technical subject that, that the history part of the education system has tended to be squeezed out. But um, there is a lot of active discussion about reintroducing history into the into the curriculum. There, there's um, a body called the Institute for New Economic Thinking, which is taking a lead on funding projects for changing economics education. And I was at their last annual conference, and there was a lot of discussion about about the role, the importance of, of history. Um, and I mean, from my own perspective, it, it, history is important for informing, clearly, and and providing. Um, a sense of perspective so that, for example, students wouldn't be surprised to discover that there had previously been banking crises, for example. Um, But I think it's also important in that history provides a sense that there have in the past been different ways of thinking about things. Um, And and it's very hard to make the case that thought has necessarily progressed. But that ideas kind of evolve with, with circumstances. I mean, there's somebody whose work I find very interesting, Carl Niebuhr, who um, was originally a Marxist, actually, um, I think, uh, who moved from Germany to, to the States. Um, and he talks about a dialectic of experience, ideas, and institutions. And, and he applied that to classical monetary theory. So, uh, and it's a function of power relations. Who, who are the powerful groups determines which ideas are are embedded in institutions. These institutions then provide the framework for policy. But meanwhile, the world's changing, and the experience eventually generates some new ideas. And you know, we're seeing this with Maastricht. That Maastricht was based on a particular set of thinking, which is kind of clashing with reality now. So, in other words, one can't understand anything without understanding the history of ideas. Should add, the, uh, the, the methodology conference that you founded is gradually morphing into an economic history 
right. so we, we have two, two speakers this year, I think. Of so there's a little bit of uh, history being taught through modern graduate students. So there's one right at the back. Yes? I was um, wondering, you mentioned earlier that Hume's economic theory was linked to individuals, and those individuals had inherently <coughs> a set of morals. But it was about, if I'm not mistaken, I think about 100 years later that um, corporate legal personality was created, and that hmm. removed mm -hmm. uh, any of the passions in a legal sense from one of the primary actors in the economy, corporations. And I wonder how Hume would have, uh, did he deal with any actor that had no inherent morals as companies would perhaps would argue uh, later have? Not to my knowledge. Um, but in a way, what I think is more important is to focus on moral sense rather than morals as such. That at that time, moral debate was the common currency. Um, so it was natural for that to be part of the way in which one discussed labour, production, economic organisation, role of the state. Um, I, I mean, he wrote extensively about the virtues. I mean, it's, it's hard to um, pinpoint exactly what would be most helpful to answer your question. I mean, I mean you talked about the natural virtues, which are... Um, well, th there was a debate at the time as to whether these were innate or learnt, and then the question of or organising the state in such a way as to promote the artificial virtues, um, like justice. This is difficult sometimes to apply Hume's way of thinking, which relies upon the passions of the individual in economic working to this, on one hand, that corporate thing, but also maybe even the um, computerised trading which is without any um, a, a, a pure reason perhaps well you'd, you'd think that but <laughs> people who work in, in the sort of interface between economics and sociology would argue very much against that that, that, that corporations I mean like any entity I mean, their, their knowledge is based on belief of some sort and I mean when we think of Fred Goodwin being determined to take over ABN AMRO, I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that was clearly a matter of, of sentiment over reason, it would seem to me. So that, I mean, corporate behaviour does involve sentiment. Was he not, and was he, sorry, was he not separating the corporate um, policy and progression? From any individual sentiment of the individuals that made up the board? I'm, I'm afraid I don't know the, the relevant. I mean, I, I can't answer that specific question. There's also the distinction between the, the violent and the calm passions. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. But, well, I mean, nothing, ha nothing happens without 
passion and sentiment, according to Hume, I mean, at, at whatever level. Oh, yes, yeah, so you're talking about trading, electronic trading. There's a study done about behaviour of electronic traders, and the um, people get are, are sort of ostracised if they behave in a way that the other traders don't like. <laughs> and there's this social interaction, even between the computer screens, which seems a bit odd at first, but you know, they behave like human beings. Well, one last very quick question. Sorry. Um, I'm not a, uh, an economist or a philosopher or a sociologist, but my um, the li- bits of homemade sociology I've picked up some, somewhere about the idea that the, this subject, the, the sociology of knowledge, goes largely mm. back to Marx. But what you're saying suggests that Hume had some sense of knowledge being socially constructed oh, yeah. and some sense mm-hmm. of, a kind of sense of sociology of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what I was kind of curious about was, I mean Marx, as I understand it, my limited knowledge of Marx, I'm not a Marxian, but um, Marx was very keenly aware that, soci- that people's ideas about society had a very strong class element in it. Mm. I wonder if, is there any of that in Hume or was Hume just not interested in class differences? No, he was quite interested in class differences. I mean, he was very concerned with what he called the middling sorts. <laughs> the squeezed middle, <laughs> perhaps we'd call him now. But uh, you know, he, did, he, he did talk in, in class terms. But not, not, in, not in a Marxian way, obviously. Um, he's not advocating any kind of wider uh, what's, um, dispersion of power, devolution of power, more democracy, more attention to the needs of the lower sort. Is he? Not that I'm aware of. But again, I mean, there's so much in Hume that <laughs> <Why not? laughs> there may be something. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, Hume comes across as a very humane individual, so that one can't imagine him having sort of negative feelings on class terms. And yet he was a product of his time in terms of how he understood the different groups within society. But, I mean, particularly in the Highland Lowland question, I mean, he was very um, understanding about the, the um, difficulties that Highlanders were finding themselves in, I mean, compared to other people at the time who were wanting to sort of improve them right, left and centre. But just a decade or two after Hume's writing, you know, Robert Burns had a very mm-hmm. good sense of how society looks different to very different social classes. Yes. yes. Should probably wrap things up there. Um, thank you very much. That was a, sl- a slightly less reassuring talk for an economist than the other huge <laughs> talk I've been to uh, this, in this session, which was uh, Ken Binmore, who's pointing out various ways in which Hume had anticipated sort of modern game theory and yeah. conventions. Yeah. Sounds a bit like a lot of stuff in game theory. Mm-hmm. That was kind of reassuring. You know, Hume has his great ideas, but you know, he, he foreshadowed some of our great thinking. Now, but this is asking us, challenging us to uh, maybe change our way of thinking. Thank you very much. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.